Is there is there something is there food in my teeth? I don't want to go out live on air with food in my teeth. That'd be embarrassing. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is August thirty first. It is the day before the long weekend, and I'm here with Joe Ferris and Mike Burns from Thoughtbot. Hey guys. Hey. Hey Ben. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah. Cool. So Joe, I've had you on the podcast twice now. So chances are people that listen with any regularity have probably heard about you now or heard you speak. So Mike, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure, yeah. So I'm a developer here at ThoughtBot. I've been here uh, for one day longer than Joe. <laughs> and... So you got seniority over him. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, there are words I can't say on the air. Right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, just, just a regular developer. I also happen to run the European branch. Oh, okay. Um, so that's sort of a new development, right? Right, right. Uh, so yeah, we're headquartered out of Sweden, Stockholm. As of like as of Monday, Monday, like to, like next Monday, right? Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's us. That's exciting. So is it fair to say that Joe is your nemesis? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Joe is my nemesis. That's okay. right. Yeah. And that, does that is that bi-directional, Joe? No, I mean, yeah, I can be his nemesis, but he doesn't have to be mine. Okay, he's like maybe number four on the villain oh, wow. priority Ouch. queue there. Huh? He sort of nothings you. Mm, yeah, that was. I don't even get a bronze medal. In, in That's true. You don't even place. Yeah. You, ba- you barely medal. That's true, but you're, you're next in line for the bronze. Okay, so who do I have to, do I have to kill someone? <laughs> Should, do you want me to go after your nemesis? I think I need to halt this conversation. Yeah, I think so. It's <laughs> good before you get something. Right. We have to edit out anyway. So it's about to be a long weekend, and I'm looking through our library for books to bring with me down to the Cape. Do you guys have any recommendations for awesome programming books that have been worthwhile for you yes oh good uh so uh i'm a big fan of uh structure interpretation of computer programming uh-huh. uh, which is entirely in scheme uh it used to be the mit intro course book that everyone failed um and one of the 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 book builds up scheme up until you're building a compiler mm-hmm. well it builds an interpreter and then uses that to build a compiler in the interpreter um, and one of the big sections of the book is object-oriented programming in Scheme, which is a nice behind-the-scenes look of what's going on when you're writing these method calls. Yeah, so you you build an, an object-oriented programming language? That's right. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I actually just did th- throw that book in my bag. Do you, is, this, is this a book where you have to do the exercises to get the value from it, or is it worth just like reading? Uh, I only read it. I did not do the exercises. Okay, but you still recommend it? So I still recommend it. it, yeah. Okay, cool. How about you, Joe? I think you and I have read all the same books. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, but my, the current book that I plan on reading is one you recommended to me, Growing Software Guided by Tests. Yeah, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests, yeah. That's a, yeah, I definitely like that one a lot. Cool, well, I plan on reading it. Okay, good. And I, actually, a lot of the reason that I've read a lot of the same books that you have is because you recommended some to me. Like, Clean Code was probably, I'd put, put that at the top of my list of, like, my programming changed kind of immediately after reading it, and I think for the better. That's definitely a good read. Yeah, I would say I reference that book more often than any other book. Mm-hmm. It's, there's not a lot of people that can write about programming with clarity and also uh, creativity, I guess. Yeah, not sound extremely boring. Extremely boring, right, yeah. But Bob Martin definitely has that. Oh, yeah. That's cool. So uh, we had a debate sort of, uh, or a discussion earlier in this week about Tell, Don't Ask. And so I've been kind of shopping around this talk, um, my refactoring talk, which I'm going to reference later, um, 
And a big theme of that talk is following tell, don't ask. So it's, you know, don't ask an object questions about itself and then decide what to do on its behalf, but instead just send messages to that object and let it decide what to do. And trying to follow that principle, I've taken that all the way out into the view, which has led me to create these sort of like presenter type objects. And you pushed back and said that you often don't follow tell, don't ask in the view. Is that, uh, can you tell us why? Yeah. Uh, well, in the view specifically, I think it's a pretty clear cut case because the whole point of tell, don't ask is that you tell an object to do something simple, right? Like save yourself. You don't ask it like, hey, if you're valid and you're not saved yet, then put yourself in the database. You just say, do the thing. I don't care how it happens. Yeah. Uh, the entire point of the view is to ask questions. You have an object and you just treat it like a struct and say like, I want to put your name here and I want to put your title here and your address here. Mm -hmm. And so there's no real telling that can happen. Mm. So you can try and wrap up some of the questions into smaller questions, but that's sort of a different thing than tell, don't ask. That's just like, I don't know, refactoring out compound conditions, things like that. Yeah. So, so what about when things get more complicated and you have a lot of like a, a good amount of conditional stuff going on, like show your address, but only if this and this and this. So again, I think that that, that ends up being view logic. So like, for example, only show your address if you have an address is a really common one. Mm-hmm. And so people try to wrap it up to have like a default address value, for example. So be like, you know, equals user address. And then the user, if it doesn't have an address, will just return, I'm homeless. But um, <laughs> that doesn't really work out when you want to, in the view, do something special for that case, right? So for example, if you want to have different markup uh, for a nice clean slate kind of thing, mm -hmm. you don't really want to move that logic out of the view, right? You certainly don't want it in the model. I know some people lately have started putting that kind of stuff into helpers, but I feel like that's just moving the view logic around. Right. It's another place to go look. Right. Mm. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't make it any cleaner. It just moves it. It's not like it belongs here more or this object is more qualified to answer this question. It's just like, I saw a conditional. I wished I didn't have one, and so I moved it somewhere else. Right. Mm. I think that extends beyond the view, too. I, mean, like, I think tell, don't ask is a good consideration. You can't treat it like a rule. Because tell, don't ask is telling you shove more responsibilities onto an object, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so every time you follow tell, don't ask, you're moving whatever you were dealing with in the client class into the class you're using, mm -hmm. which is often a good idea. But for example, like MVC tells you not to do that. MVC says put view logic in the view instead of having all the logic to do with a user that is also view logic on the user. Right. Only the core logic goes in the user and then all the view logic goes in the view. You run into that problem with controllers and Rails all the time, like the if save, do one thing, else re-render the form. Yep. Tell, don't ask tells you not to do that. If you're following tell, don't ask in a controller, then you should offload that logic into you know whatever you're trying to save. So you just say, like, hey, user, save and render yourself. Mm -hmm. But MVC sort of tells you not to do that. Huh. So is that like a fundamental tension? Like we can't do tell, don't ask and MVC at the same time in some regards? I think there's a fundamental tension of tell, don't ask versus single responsibility principle, which is related to MVP or to MVC. Anytime you're trying to extract a concern, then you're quite possibly violating tell, don't ask. Right. But so like the, there's also the question of how did we get, how does, why does ERB force uh, asking instead of telling? And, uh, and sort of what you would normally do in, in, you know, a proper object-oriented programming is you would tell the object to render itself, uh, and it would it would do the rendering, and you might even give it an object to render onto, uh, such as the dis the display output. Um, 
And ERB is the opposite of that. And we got there from the controller, where the controller, as you mentioned, is doing asking instead of telling. Um, and what, what you would probably want to do is say, go save yourself. If that's succeeded, run this callback. If that failed, run this other callback. But that's hard to do in Ruby, right? Because you, you can't pass two blocks. And so, well, without it looking bad. Um, and so I don't think it's a tension in MVC. I think it's a tension in Ruby that we ended up there, especially in Rails, uh, just because there's a mix of procedural and imperative and um, all sorts of paradigms uh, coming together to cause MVC to come up in this direction. I like to hate on ERB about as much as anybody, but I don't really know what ERB has to do with view logic. Like if you have a situation where you're telling a model to render itself, then the model is handling view logic, right? And MVC pretty clearly says not to do that. It says the view should be responsible for the view logic. Right, but the view, the model could use a specific model of renderer, right? The model could be in charge of figuring out which renderer to use for it. Um, but then that renderer would need all the attributes from the model that it wanted to interpolate into its view or you know, whatever kind of view it is. Like, I don't think it's ERB. If you had more of a traditional GUI-style view, you're still doing things like fill in this input with this value. And that value you fill in, like in a form, in uh, any kind of view, would normally be treated as an internal attribute of user, right? It has no behavior. There's no reason for other objects to look at it except in this weird case of I need to put all your attributes in something visual. Right, so you're sort of arguing that MVC is at odds with SRP. No, I think that tell, don't ask is at odds with SRP. So I think MVC is following SRP by saying the user should know about user behavior, but it shouldn't know about view behavior, even if it's rendering a view for a user, right? Right. Oh, okay, so tell, don't ask is at odds with SRP. Exactly. Because it forces you to sort of jam more concerns into an object so that you can tell it to do things. Right. So there's, you know, there are two extremes, right? Like you could have the situation where you separate out every possible use case, not just a concern, but every individual thing you do. You have as its own object, and then it treats everything like structs, right? And there's no behavior on the objects. Mm -hmm. And then at the opposite end of things is where you just have one top-level thing that's like, go, children! And then they all just delegate down the stack, and, you know, everything knows how to handle each individual complicated verb. Mm. So... Maybe we're like so. If if, if this is if it's this SRP versus uh, SRP versus tell them ask trade off, uh, like what are some cases in which you'd want to choose uh, tell them ask over SRP if the view isn't one of them? I think it's not a, a clear cut decision. I think MVC itself is not always necessarily a game, right? So like MVC is telling you, for example, that you're almost always going to have shotgun surgery, right? right. Shotgun surgery is an anti-pattern where anytime you need to make a change, you need to change several different objects. So, for example, if you have a form, you want to add a new attribute to the user, you will almost certainly need to do something to get it in the database and then maybe have some model logic validating it and then put it on the form, right? If you had only one object, if you were following tell, don't ask all the way and not following MVC, you'd only have to change the user because the user would know about how to put itself in the database, how to validate itself, how to render itself. Okay, and that sounds great. It does, but then you end up having all these concerns in user. User already, when you're following MVC, has a tendency to get pretty fat. Can't you add those abilities with like decorators? 
Yeah, but arguably using a decorator isn't following tell, don't ask either. So, for example, if you... Let's go back to our example of in the control, you're saying, okay, user, save and render yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a decorator now around user that's like renderable user. And so that delegates to user and says save. But then it's going to have that same logical branch that it had inside of the controller now in the user decorator. And it's delegating. It's asking a bunch of questions of the user that it decorates. And so, again, you've just kind of moved that somewhere else. Hmm. So is the problem the active record pattern in that case? Is the active record pattern too procedural and not tell don't ask e? No, again, I don't think it's related to the active record pattern. I don't think there's any anti-pattern or single problem. I think it's a trade-off you have to spend between being able to have small classes and being able to have all your you know related logic in one place, right? Like if you put everything that ever has anything to do with a user in the user class, it's easier to find that stuff. But then you have too much stuff in one place, so it's hard to modify any one thing. And so you have to find that balance where you have just small enough classes, but things are not too spread out. So one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, uh, as I've heard you mention this term called class-oriented programming and contrasting it with object-oriented programming. So what, what is the difference there? So the, the big difference there uh, is very much that you're passing classes around instead of other kinds of objects. Right? So that's, that's where the name comes from. Um, and so an example of and so the the problem with this is that class methods and class behavior is static, and so when you write when the program loads, it is there um, and changing it at runtime is not part of the language um, uh, and to give so to give an example mm-hmm. uh, in rails, we used to have and we still we're still transitioning away from um, uh, objects that you passed the form for needed to respond to class name. Uh, it was class dot name. Class dot name. It was uh, uh, the name method on the uh, class itself. Mm. Um, and so if you had like a at user, you would have to say at user dot class dot name. And, and so if you were writing your own object, your own presenter object or whatever that would get passed to form for, you had to change the, you had to define a name class method on it. And so this meant if you built an abstraction around that, um, then you had this class that needed to have a different class name for different objects, uh, mm. for example. Um, but you can't do that at runtime because it's a class, and you define, you define it on the class level. Right. So, for example, if you decide to write a decorator that applies to two different models mm-hmm. and then try and use it in an active model, you're screwed because you need to decide at class time. So for this decorator class it needs to know which class it decorates. Because otherwise, in the, you know, in the form, when it calls dot class, mm-hmm. it's, it's, going to, it's not going to know which class it's talking about. Right? So why, why is the form for it? Why does it want to know dot class, dot name, as opposed to just like dot name? Was well, there a design <laughs> decision for that? Like, was that? Do you think it was intentional or just happened to be how it happened? It's, it's changed since then to just dot name. Okay. Um, I don't think it actually has. I think they fixed the partial path one, but I don't think they've fixed the oh. model name yet. Okay. I think it's a matter of convenience um, that it was already defined on the class. And so somebody said, like, why am I going to define this name thing and delegate it when it's the same for every single instance? Especially since, you know, saying that you have to have a name method is sort of annoying on a model Mm. since lots of things already have a name method. Mm. So you could have, like, model underscore name or, you know, whatever. Or maybe you could try and ask a more specific question like, uh, what should I use when generating URLs? Like, what is your URL fragment name? Mm-hmm. But I think it was convenient since it was already on the class, since it didn't vary per instance, for them to just leave it there 
and then call it through the class, which is both violating law of Demeter and doing class-oriented programming. Mm. Right. So it was just short-sightedness as to what the downsides were. Mm. I think it's also... I think it goes beyond short-sightedness because it's not like these people just don't care. I think there are people that consider it a best practice because it's, from one perspective, enforcing a convention, right? So if you can vary at runtime uh, what model you're decorating, it means now you have to know. You have to look up what that decorator is and see how its decoration behavior works. Right. But if you assume that one size fits all, you can say like, Ah, well, there's always exactly one active record model for every table, and that corresponds to a controller. And if you decorate it, that'll have one decorator, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes easier to find things. But the downside of that is that when you have something, you know, actually complicated that's convenient to make reusable runtime behavior, mm-hmm. it's it's flat out impossible. So Rails Core is taking away our freedoms. <laughs> they, I, I think it's probably more accurate to say that they hate freedom. Okay. I, yeah, that sounds accurate. That's one of that's one of two ways that you can do class-oriented programming is accessing an object's class. Anytime you call object.class, you're removing the ability to do runtime uh, you know, composition. But the other big one that Rails also does is referring not to a class, but to a class name. So this, there's a really cool thing in Ruby where every class is an object. Mm-hmm. So for example, you can use a class as a factory instance that responds to new and just pass it around, and that's okay. Because then you can pass another object that's not a class, right? So you could pass some other object that responds to new and does runtime-oriented things. Mm-hmm. But if you instead store a class name and then whenever you need it, look for the class with that name, you're screwed. Because it has to be constant, right? It has to be a, a static thing. You can't vary what the constant you know, capital U user means every time you look for it. Mm. And the good news is that <laughs> both of these problems are pretty easy to avoid. In the first case of accessing something's class directly, instead you can just delegate the things you need. And I've found that frequently when I get to the point where I want to access something on a class, I find that I don't actually need to delegate that. The client actually needed a different, more specific question. I was already overstepping my bounds. Hmm. Um, but the other thing, you know, referring to a class name instead of a class, is even easier to solve. You just pass the class instead of the class name, which is frequently more convenient anyway. Hmm. So we're forced into some of this with Rails, right? But that's, sometimes we can't get around it. That's right. Yeah. Although it could be fixed in Rails. I don't believe that it's a fundamental conflict with Rails philosophy. Like, it doesn't conflict with convention over configuration. You can still have a convention and assume the name is the same right. by default, but then allow somebody to pass something. You're going to have to provide some before and after code before I can consider this change, then. <laughs> cool. So, uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier that you were working on some funky stuff in your spare time, doing a little small talking. Yeah, yeah. I actually write a bunch of small talk uh, for the past two weeks. Um, so what what happened was I started writing, um, started playing around with Ruby, where all my classes inherit from basic object instead of object. So which is to say, I have nothing. I'm working with nothing. I'm just making my own language, uh, my own libraries. Mm. Um, and the the toy program I was writing was a uh, a command line calculator. So there'd be a prompt. You type like one plus one. It gives you back two, and it prompts you again. What was the motivation behind just basic object? Um, it, there was some. It, it's a mix of things. So there was like frustration with, uh, I, I guess, the complexity of da- daily life with active support and active record of all that stuff I'm dealing with. Um, and then you, I want to make my own programming language, but that's a lot of work. Um, so this is a halfway point of 
what libraries would I want in that programming language? So gotcha. this is like starting from scratch, uh, seeing what what comes out of what comes naturally out of mm. things. Um, so yeah. when you found something you wanted, are you just like reappearing it, or are you like writing it from scratch? I'm I'm typically writing it from scratch. Uh, one example of something that I'm not writing from scratch is the I/O logic. So mm. like gets and puts, um, I uh, I instead use the one built into kernel. Um, but that's encapsulated. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and so how did you get end up at Smalltalk? Oh, right. Then? So, yeah, I ended up at Smalltalk. So I was, okay, so the way I ended up at Smalltalk, let me tell you, was... Um, <laughs> gather around, children. Gather around. So I, w- I was parsing. And so, like, p- the user would type 1 plus 1, and now I have to parse that into uh, the addition uh, object with two operands of 1 and 1. Um, and I was reminded of my scheme days where we would type, uh, if we needed input from the user, we would use the read uh, procedure, and that would prompt the user for some input and then parse the input as scheme and give us back an object that we would deal with as, uh, I guess, a list, right, because mm-hmm. that's all you deal with in Lisp. Right. Um, and so that was, that was a primitive built into scheme um, in most Lisps is this, Function that you can just prompt the user for input and get back a parse tree uh, in inside the language I'm working on. And the user would have to enter in the actual like list, right? That's right. They couldn't just type whatever. They couldn't just type whatever, right? Um, and so it dawned on me that that was what I actually wanted the user to do here was type um, something that I could then parse, um, or something that I, I could get back a, back a parsed object and work with that in my native language. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started down that road, and uh, I was wondering how Smalltalk did this, because Smalltalk appeared at the same time that Lisp was an awesome thing, um, and they influenced each other a lot. Um, And so I was wondering if Smalltalk had done this, if they had uh, solved it, and what their parsers were like. So I grabbed Squeak, and I couldn't find anything that, that made me think that this was done for me, that like the read primitive existed in Smalltalk. Mm. Um, but there was a Smalltalk compiler class, and you could say compiler, dot, uh, compiler evaluate and give it a string, and it would, evalu- it would compile the, the string as Smalltalk and then produce the output. And after a few clicks, I found the parser that it used, and uh, it was very simple and straightforward. Um, you would say parser parse and give it the string, and it would give you back the parsed object. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started using that as my model of how I wanted this to work. Um, and the more I played with Squeak over the week, I realized that I just wanted to play with Smalltalk a lot. Um, they, had, they had written a really nice object-oriented programming language, it turns out. Hmm. What do you like about it? Uh, so the, the thing I like about it are the objects. I, I like the, the more minimal syntax um, uh, so I, I often think of the big difference between functional and object-oriented programming as conditionals. And so in, uh, what I mean is by in, in functional programming, the conditional has, um, often has syntax and it's explicit. So you say, if I'm given a user, then do this. If I'm given an admin, do this. Uh, whereas in object-oriented programming, you typically do um, uh, conditionals through polymorphism and so you'll say, you know, user, go do this, or, you know, object, go do this. And if you're a user, you're going to do that. Admin does that. Um, 
And one of the ways that shows itself in small talk is the can, the if and if else and if else um, whatever construct is actually a mes- message, a method on the Boolean classes. And so you tell the the you have an object that represents truth, and you tell it you know if you're true, do this; if you're false, do that, and it just does the right thing. Mm. Um, I like any language that makes if uh, disappear into itself mm. um, as a pattern. So th- that's defined on Booleans, the, right? So a true isn't class a Boolean always class. true? Why would I have like a if you're false, do this? No, if, Boole- like, if, if true is a Booleans can be false. <laughs> true is always true. True is always true. False is always false. Yep. Yep. I'm with you there. Okay. And then what is nil? Nil is always nil. <laughs> um, I believe in small talk, I have to check this, that messages to nil get e- eaten and discarded, but don't raise an error. Ah, so if you did an if statement with a nil, it would evaluate neither branch? Right. I, I could be wrong, though. They don't proliferate nil as badly as Ruby or Java. So they don't, yeah. So one of the things I've heard people love about Smalltalk is the refactoring browser. Have you played with that much? Yes. Uh, in fact, that's how I found the compiler and the parser and all oh, that okay. stuff. And so one of, the, one of the really cool things, so regardless of just refactoring, just like entering new methods and or messages in Smalltalk, um, is every... Every message has a category as well. And so you can say, um, and every class also has a category. So give me the compiler category. Let me select the, um, the compiler class itself, the main class. And then let me look at the initialization methods. Right, right, um, right. And then there's a tab for jumping between class methods and instance methods. Um, and uh, there's, you know, people talk about, about single responsibility principle. And it, it seems that they t- tend to focus their SRP into the categories instead of the classes. Huh. And so, you know, a class typically has a single responsibility, but it kind of mm-hmm. kind of goes whatever way it wants. Yeah. And by having subcategories, then you have this clean, you know, here are these three methods that I need to care about, and they interact with each other maybe, but they tend not to interact as much with methods in other categories. Huh. And is there is there a restriction on calling between those categories, or is it just mostly like metadata? It's, it's, like these it's, methods are related to this idea. It's just metadata. It's, there's no restriction at all. And in fact, having a category is optional. So that would be similar to just putting every method in a mixin in Ruby. That's right. And saying like, well, uh, these are the persistence methods, and I'll put them in the persistence mixin. Right. So long as you don't do anything beyond just moving them into separate modules. Yeah. Right. Right. It seems like that would definitely actually help understandability, not the module thing specifically, but just this category idea. Right, right. Because you're, cause like you said, classes have one responsibility, but they kind of have like one logical high-level responsibility sometimes, and really they're managing a couple different things beneath them. Exactly. Those categories let you group that stuff together. Exactly. And so, I mean, there are a ton of classes that come with... I was using Squeak, and there's a ton of classes that come with the default image. Um, but there could be so many more if they had turned all those categories into classes instead. Um, and so this is a nice breakdown. Interesting. Hmm. You done any small talk, Joe? Nope. All right. Good talk. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about something really important. Uh, method order. Uh, yeah. 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 
Any, uh, any, any heart strong feelings in the room on method order? Yeah, so if you are reading a method and you want to know, and you see that it calls some other method that's inside the same class, the other method it calls should probably be next. Hmm. Um, that's the ideal situation. That's, so that's the best case. I've heard it described as like reading a newspaper mm-hmm. um, and how the you tend to start, I think it's described as a pyramid in, in journalism school, and you tend to start, which way does the pyramid go? Oh. Uh, up. <laughs> You're Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you want to get more specific as you, as you continue reading. Mm. Um, so your, higher le- your, top me- your top methods are like the highest level of abstraction in that class, and then the detail work just slowly appears as you read your way down. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's proposed in clean code and various other places by good old Uncle Bob. Yeah, absolutely. How about alphabetical? Alphabetical, I, I can't stand because yeah. it inevitably results in, in that, you know, that ideal situation of you know, the method you're looking for is the next method on your screen. That almost never happens. Yeah. And it'll go like, you know, sometimes it'll be the, the next method, like three methods down. Sometimes it'll be three methods up. It also means that, like, there's no logical grouping. Mm. Uh, so, for example, if you have, like, um, I don't know, like if you delegate uh, or if you if you have a bunch of things that can be saved, right? And you want to have save underscore one thing, save underscore another thing. Mm-hmm. But then you want to group the things together. Uh, that's that's really difficult, right? Because they're all going to be alphabetically together. So then all the save things are together instead of all the like the targets. Mm-hmm. So you have to rename those methods. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's what people end up doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And typically I see people reach for alphabetical method ordering when uh, they have experience with really large classes and they can't find the methods. Oh, uh, yeah. And they don't have a find feature on their editor. Apparently, yeah. Um, and so the better solution is to make smaller classes. Got it. So if you're if you're at the point where you feel like you need to alphabetize your methods, then you have more than your class is too big. Right. And one of the benefits of doing the like descending abstraction newspaper approach is not just being able to find methods, but being able to read through a class quickly and get an understanding of what it does. Mm. Because the the first methods you look at will be the all the public high level important ones. Yeah. Do you, those are the things you really need to know in order to see what this class is presenting to the outside world. And then as you go down, you'll see like, okay, well, this is what these methods do, and these are the like tangential methods. And then you get into the private section where it's like, here are all the nitty gritty details that I only need to care about if I'm, you know, refactoring this class or I found a bug. Uh, and this interacts interestingly with Ruby because of the high convention of grouping all the private methods together. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, when Uncle Bob talks about this, he shows examples. And he'll put, you know, like a public method that's very high level. Then right after that, two private methods that have the details of, you know, what that method does. Hmm. The only purpose of those methods is to maybe assign a name to something, like a condition that's only used in that one method or, you know, just little internals. It's nice to have a private method there. Hmm. Um, And so they're all grouped together and they're easy to read. But in Ruby, since everybody puts all their private methods together, what happens is you'll have two public methods and they're very high level and there's no actual information of the method, and they'll reference some you know, conditional method. And then you have to keep jumping down to the private section. I find that I frequently, when I'm reading a class in Ruby, I actually use a vertical split. 
so that I can have the private section and the public section open and sort of scroll down and go like, ah, here's the private section for this other thing I was looking at. Yeah. Isn't that a failure in the abstractions of the private methods then, if you really need to go dig into them? Right. That's what I was just thinking, is that those private methods should be well-named so that you can just read the public method and understand how it works. And then later, if you really need to dig down into the debugging, for example, then you jump to the private methods. Right. I think that's true most of the time, that you don't need to look at the private methods if they're named well. But again, if you're looking at, like the biggest example is not even debugging, it's refactoring. For example, if I'm trying to figure out, like, can I delete this method if I delete this other method? That's not easy to do. It's They're not grouped together. It's not like a little unit of related methods. There's, like, the high-level method, and it's like, okay, what else uses this method that it's calling? And you have to keep jumping up and down and seeing, like, why the other thing uses that method. And, hmm. You know, if they're all just grouped together in a little section, like, almost like, you know. Small talks categories. Small talks categories, then it would be a lot easier to go, like, well, I'm just dumping this whole category. Whereas in Ruby, the category is never together. So how do you feel about moving everything into modules and only having includes in your classes? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that laughter is the answer. He backed you into that one. <laughs> well, so, I mean, a similar thing to doing that would just be having commented sections, right? So instead of having a module persistence, you just have a big comment that says persistence. And at the top it says public. You have public methods, and then you have private and private methods. And then you have another section. And I think that would be the same as using the module. Okay. Is that bad? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I'd be opposed to that. I'm opposed to to having... I don't think the comments would be necessary, strictly speaking. If you just had one public section with a bunch of group things, I think the comments would be just noise. Right. I think the issue is that um, I've never been able to convince anybody else they should have more than one public or private section of methods in a Ruby class. Right. I got to say, I, I have this inertia because I've been writing Ruby for a bunch of years of just having a, a private section and a public section. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm quite comfortable with it. Um, I'm not opposed to changing it, except in that I'm already, I already know this one. Well, that's my problem, is that I'm not uncomfortable with it anymore. I'm right. resigned and depressed. <laughs> I just understand that this, it's like uh, namespaces in Ruby. Mm-hmm. I understand I'm never going to have a namespace in Ruby. I either have to deal with it or pick another language. Right. And for now, I'm dealing with it. But you know, as far as method order goes, this is one place where... I just have to lament my choice of isn't, language. Isn't the last stage of grieving acceptance? I've been there for quite some time. <laughs> I mean, that's where you end. <laughs> I mean, that's where it stops. Uh, so zooming out to a sort of more abstract idea, perhaps. So you guys have both been writing code for a pretty long time. So when you look back on stuff you've written not too long ago and like, or, or consider sort of how your approach has changed or how your style has changed, have you know, do you notice any themes, any big things? Like, now I'm writing classes that look like this I used to write classes that look like this, or anything like that that's sort of a concrete thematic change that you've noticed over the years? Um, I think the most common theme that I find is that I make fewer assumptions. I take fewer givens. Like a good example, not code that was really recently, but I'd say like maybe six months ago, I was looking at a piece of code that was six months old then. Mm-hmm. So it was now a year old. Um, and I noticed that I had all these adder readers, like that pretty much every property of the object, like every collaborator that had every thing that came in at the constructor, I had a reader for. And it was just one of those things I assumed, like, oh, it's just good practice. I have these properties. I'm just going to make readers for them. And I don't know why I was doing that. Hmm. Um, I was just assuming, like, I'm just going to do this all the time because it's easy and it never hurts. But the truth is that it does hurt because then you end up using them when they're there and then you can't refactor it out. Yeah, And I think those are the most common things I do, that it's like, it's always a good idea to do this, or it never hurts to do this. 
then later I'm like, oh, why don't I have this reader here? Yeah. Now people are using it. Totally. That, that's interesting. That's similar to one of my high-level changes, which is that I've, I've become more and more conscious of my public API. Um, and a lot of this just comes out of dealing with old code that I wrote and code that other people have written, and now I need to refactor something or I want to change something, and I'm stuck with the API that we have. Um, a lot of this came out of work with Paperclip, where uh, Paperclip just exposed everything to everybody, and people made use of that for their modules and, and gems and plugins. Mm. Um, and now that I want to refactor Paperclip, I'm running into places where I'm going to break everyone's code um, and trying to maintain backwards compatibility where possible there has just taught me that you should not expose anything to anyone. Mm. Uh, you know, as, as Clerk said, this job would be better if it weren't for the customers. <laughs> so it sounds like you guys are both hiding more things within your objects now. That's true. I would say that as I get older, I get more paranoid and curmudgeon-y. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's interesting. You touched on something that I think that I've noticed in myself as a change of you used to do this thing because you thought it was always good, and now you, don't, you often don't do that thing, but maybe you sometimes do. Like I feel like I'm getting, I'm coming to grips with the fact that like there are very few like always good idea things in programming or always bad idea. Like tell don't ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I get really excited about tell don't ask and I do it all over the place and then like someone's like actually you know and I'm like actually that's a pretty good point and like there there are so few things where it's like this is just always awesome. Right, and that's true of life. Yeah, <laughs> right. I guess what I'm saying is I'm aging. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think those principles and guidelines are all good to know, and they're extremely useful as communication tools. But none of them are just like, this makes good code. Mm. You should look at them all as, this is how this changes your code. So, you know, like, for example, tell, don't ask. If you follow tell, don't ask, there will be fewer places to look for a specific type of code. It will group one thing together. Mm -hmm. And so if the problem you're experiencing is like, this shit is spread out all over the place, then tell, don't ask will help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Single responsibility principle is the opposite. If you're like looking in a class and you're like, there is so much stuff in here. How does this keep happening? Then, you know, trying to extract concerns and throw it right in Tell Don't Ask's face is what you really need. Mm-hmm. That said, we still don't use GoTo. <laughs> <laughs> there are some definite bad ideas. Right. Except when we're using exceptions very craftily. Yes, or first class continuations. So do you guys have any recommendations for intermediate-ish level programmers who are trying to make the next jump? Like, how do you how do you keep growing as a programmer once you're sort of over the easy parts? Like, you're a couple of years in, you're still trying to get better. Like, what are the next things you can do and focus on that, that lead to continued growth? I mean, I don't know which, which level this is appropriate for, but you should learn a bunch of programming languages and different programming paradigms. And not just learn how to write Ruby in Haskell, but actually learn Haskell and how you're supposed to write stuff in there mm. in Erlang and you know, Prolog and all these different paradigms. Um, and they're not going to make your Ruby code better, but they're going to open your eyes to the fact that something, that there are trade-offs everywhere mm. and that there are right answers and wrong answers that are very subjective and based on the current situation and might actually change in six months. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd say something similar, which is that you should write a lot of different kinds of things. Like, don't just work on one application. If you're working at a product company and this is the only product you've ever worked on, then you're learning a lot of bad habits right now because you're not learning where this good idea you had, like tell, don't ask, or MVC, is actually uncomfortable because chances are you'll reach some point in your career where you're working on something dramatically different and all these assumptions you had are not 
universal. It was just about the product you were working on. Mm. Yeah. So I'd say like in your spare time, work on something really different than what you work on in your unspare time. Interesting. Which is kind of a generalization of Mike's thing. Like use different programming languages and also different, do different tasks with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if you don't use a different programming language, just try using a different framework. Try instead of writing an application, write a library. You know what I mean? Like do a lot of different programming mm-hmm. because um, you'll find out what works and what doesn't work in different situations. Mm-hmm. Like related, maybe we can talk about things that we do. So like every six months I try to learn either a new program, programming language or I try a new web framework. Um, uh, most recently was the Scala Play framework. And this is both to evaluate it as uh, is this better than Rails and should I switch, but also what can I learn from this and what have they learned from us and what should I focus more on. Mm. And, and has, has that been good for you? It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've, I've grown as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Plus you can say like, oh, this would be so much easier in Scala. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to whoever you're pairing with and annoy the crap out of them. Yeah. Which I is like, a useful skill. Oh, I love annoying the crap out of people, yeah. 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 Absolutely. By being smarmy and, yeah. One thing I try to do is um, whenever I get in a situation where all these great ideas I've had are not working, is I try to do something that somebody else thinks is a good idea that I've always thought was a bad idea. Hmm. Like a good example is um, in Ruby, I, I hate mixins. I can't stand them. Every time I run into a place where somebody's used a mixin, it causes me problems. And so on this last project I was working on, um, I ran into a situation where I was trying to do it through composition, and it wasn't working out the way I wanted to. And I ended up throwing a mix in at it, using a shared example group to test it in both places. And, you know, like six months from now, it may need to be refactored out again. But it solved it way quicker than the other approach I was taking. Hmm. So, um, you know, like if there's something else you see somebody doing and you think they're a smart person, but you think what they're doing is stupid, maybe it's actually that it's just stupid for all the situations you were in and you need to just try it in a new situation. Hmm. We keep coming back to this, like, nothing is always good or bad idea. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I have some books on that if you want. <laughs> In German. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. So before we go, I want to mention two events uh, at which ThoughtBot people are speaking. Actually, both of us are sitting right here. This is great. Yeah. So I'm giving a talk at Rocky Mountain Ruby in Boulder, Colorado, which is September 19th to September 22nd. And then Mike is giving When Not to Use Object-Oriented Techniques. And why don't you tell us what that is, Michael? Sure, yeah. So I'm going to talk about other things you can do that are not typically object-oriented techniques and uh, give some cases of when you might and might not use them uh, and generally talk about things like that. Cool. Are we going to hear about functional programming? You will hear about functional programming. Uh, You'll hear the word monoid. You'll hear the word first-class continuation. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be wild. Awesome. So if that sounds good to you, check out Frozen Rails, which is in Helsinki, Finland, from September 20th to September 21st. And I think that just about wraps everything up. So thank you guys very much for coming by and talking. It's been enlightening. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email that question to info at thoughtbot.com or tweet to us at at thoughtbot. Today's podcast was recorded by Edward Lovell, also edited by Edward Lovell and produced by Chad. Thanks for listening.